the rules are, are stricter than they were pre-2015, also enforced more rigorously than they were pre-2015. You're listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 212 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. The Foreign Investments Review Board is to protect our national security, competition, government policies, economy and community. But how exactly do they want to achieve this? And what does this mean for you or your clients? Here's Simon Dorovich with more details. the Foreign Investments Review Board came to life? Well, the whole regime of you know, reviewing foreign investment in Australia underwent significant changes. I think it was 2015, if I remember. I remember looking into the changes at the time and advising some some mm. clients about, about them at a, at a theoretical level. And we were at the height of an investment boom, property prices went up and up and up. It became more and more unaffordable, hence... They, I think they were political cries to stem the activity of foreign investors and that's how the review board came in. That's mainly triggered by real estate? I think it was... So the act itself that you know, governs this area uh, is the Foreign Acquisitions and Takeovers Act, 1975, but then the policy, Australia's foreign investment policy, was altered in December 2015. Yeah. So it has been around for a long time. Yeah, yeah. It's been Over around... 40 years. Yeah, the, yeah. And possibly before then it was governed by another act, uh, so it could, be, could mm. be longer. In terms of why they changed it back in 2015, I think you're right, definitely part of the reason was concern over foreign investment driving up property values in residential real estate, but I think also concerns about foreign investment in sensitive areas, uh, so, you know, in farms, uh, food security. There was a case of a the lease of the commercial port of Darwin. It was leased by the Northern Territory government to a Chinese-owned company, and that was, I believe they said it was outside of the scope of their rules, that they didn't for how I'm not sure the details of how it was structured or, or precisely why, but they said it was outside the scope of the board's powers at the time, and that was another reason that they felt we need to expand those powers. I see. So now the powers of the board are widened so that this lease contract now would fall within the powers of the board. I believe so. Though my understanding of how things operated before 2015 is very, very... Patchy. Patchy. Because I really only became aware of it as a concept. We asked before, when did you first hear about it? To be honest, it was probably in 2015 when they were talking about changes to it. Mm. Yeah, but that's good. I mean, the current state is the main thing that interests us. Yeah. How does it work? So when a foreign person wants to invest in Australia, you know, for example, to 
buy land in Australia or to invest in an Australian business, acquire shares, for example, they may need to seek approval from the treasurer. And the treasurer assesses the application against whether or not it's in Australia's national interest. And by national interest, the kind of factors that he can take into account, I say he because the current treasurer is male, but of course, yeah, he or she in the future, national security, obviously, competition, government policy, is it consistent with government policies? What will its impact on government revenue be? Just the general economy and community, how will the interests of employees and creditors and all different stakeholders, how might they be impacted? And the character of the investor in terms of complying with the law, you know, what are their corporate governance practices, things like that. So all these factors and, and potentially more come into play in deciding whether or not the investment is in Australia's national interest. And so the treasurer makes the decision, but the treasurer is advised by the Foreign Investment Review Board. Oh, I see. So the review board actually doesn't make the decision. It's the treasurer who makes the decision. Yes, that's right. But I guess that is the official setup. But I can imagine, is it a little bit like the Queen and our national laws in terms of the, you know, how the Queen just gives royal assent? Is it a little bit like this as well, that the treasurer just gives a royal assent to whatever the review board decides? I think that's perhaps taking it a bit too far, because I think he does have more of a role than the Queen does, only in more high-profile cases. So the Queen will will never, ever reject, or the Governor-General to, you know, will never, ever refuse to sign a bill that's been passed both Houses of Parliament, in a high-profile case, the Treasurer may still disagree with the Foreign Investment Review Board's recommendation and reject an application. Though in practice, it's actually quite rare for applications to be rejected. So I found some statistics. In 2016-17, which is the most recent year I could find, there were 8,607 applications that were approved unconditionally, 5,750 that were approved with conditions, and we can talk later about you know what those conditions could be, 770 were withdrawn, and some of them may have been withdrawn because they were told we will reject it, but only three were ultimately rejected. So even if we include all 770 that were withdrawn, and there of course could be many other reasons why they withdrew, it's still a relatively small number compared to the almost 14,000, over 14,000 that were approved with or without conditions. And to compare the three that were rejected in 2016-17, in the previous year there were five rejections. So it's not as if it was an outlier. In the vast majority of cases, the treasurer doesn't reject these applications. But that feels a little bit like then what's the point? You know, what's the point of the <laughs> Maybe it's to collect board? maybe it's to collect application fees. It's a good question. At least the power is there. And or do that you think that they you know, they need to have the power in those cases. And maybe without the rules in place, there would be even more perhaps the number is also artificially deflated 
because the people that would otherwise be rejected aren't even applying in the first place. But so, if, if the regime wasn't in place, they would go ahead and, and make the in investment. So we might have a case of self-censorship as well. Yeah, that could be it. So just to give a few examples of things that were rejected. So in 2001, Royal Dutch Shell wanted to take over Woodside Petroleum, and that was rejected. In 2011, the Singapore Exchange wanted to merge with the Australian Stock Exchange. Again, that was rejected. And there was also, a, I haven't made note of the year, but there was a bid by the State Grid Corporation of China. They wanted to have a, enter into a 99-year lease for a majority stake of the New South Wales electricity distribution network, and that was rejected. So you can see that it's pretty high-profile cases that involve significant impacts on Australia's national interest that are, are the ones that are rejected, not generally small parcels of land that you know, are not, in, or you know, acquisitions of smaller businesses that are outside of sensitive sectors. If you're not a foreign person, then you, you don't need to apply for approval. And technically, they, they don't use the term approval. They would say issue a, a, a no objection notification. But it's easier just to say approval because yeah, no objection yeah, yes. <laughs> means yes. approval, really. Yes. Double negative means positive. Yeah. So a foreign person can be an individual or a company or a trust or a foreign government or a foreign government investor. Basically any entity, correct? Yeah, basically any entity, <laughs> yeah. So in the case of an individual, it means so a natural person who is not ordinarily resident in Australia. And for someone who is not an Australian citizen, so an Australian citizen can in some circumstances be a foreign person, Uh, which is a bit strange to think of. They're an Australian citizen, but they're a foreign person. But if they're not ordinarily resident in Australia, then they will still be a foreign person, though an exemption may, may apply to them. So for Australian citizens, there's no specific rule for working out if they're ordinarily resident in Australia. It's more of a, a facts and circumstances. But so Australian citizens are not necessarily automatically always exempt from any requirement to get approval. Yeah, that's right. The passport doesn't give you a green card in all cases. You might fall under the review board even with an Australian passport. Yes, it's, it's, it's very possible that an exemption will apply. It's possible that an Australian citizen is a foreign person. But in the case of a non-citizen, then they are ordinarily resident in Australia. If they were actually in Australia, physically present for 200 or more days in the preceding 12 months. And at the relevant time, their continued presence in Australia was not subject to a limitation imposed by law. Condition of their visa, I suppose, could be one yeah, common example of 
When I see the 200 days, I do think, why couldn't they just harmonize the rules? You know how we have the 183-day 183 rule in the residency yeah. rules? You know, why can't we just make it all 200 or 183 rather than having these different days and the different rules? But maybe the 200 comes from certain visa applications, maybe certain visas go... Why they came yeah. up with 200 days, I, mean, 200 days? I don't better, know. It's a better number than 183 because 200 is nice and even and... yeah. Okay, so 200 it's, days or more, it is. Yeah, yeah, and of course, you know, these rules, as you point out, are, are different to our four income tax residency tests that, yeah, as you can see, there's foreign person for these rules, there's citizenship and there's tax residency, and all three apply different rules and you could, for one person, you may have a consistent outcome that they're, that they're in or they're out under all three rules, but... For others, you could have a discrepancy between between the three. So it just goes by the number of days. If you are in Australia for 200 days or more, you're no longer a foreign person. So that means if you come in on a student visa and you're in Australia for more than 200 days, you don't count as a foreign person. You can buy whatever assets you like. No, because the person who's here on the student visa will have some time limit on their visa. And so that would be a their continued presence in Australia is subject to a limitation oh, imposed see. by law. That's where that second factor... So that means you can really only circumvent this if you have a PR, if you have a permanent residency. Yeah, I think that's correct. That's the only time when your presence in Australia is not subject to any limitations. Yeah, Okay, so somebody who's living in Australia, who's in Australia for more than 200 years and has a permanent residence 200 visa. 200 days. Sorry? You said 200 years. Oh, 200 days, <laughs> yes. Sorry. So somebody who is in Australia for 200 days or more and has a permanent residence visa would not fall under the foreign person definition. Yes, that's right. So then we look at a company or a trust. So in that case, it's there are two ways that a company or trust could be a foreign person. First is if an individual foreign person, so an individual not ordinary resident in Australia, or another for foreign company or trust or a foreign government holds a substantial interest. And a substantial interest means interest of 20% or more. And you include the interests of their associates when you calculate if they hold a 20% interest, and you can also trace through multiple entities. So if one foreign person has a 20% or more interest, or, and this is the second part of the test, two or more foreign people have what they call an aggregate substantial interest. So that's an interest of 40% or more. So what that means is if, let's say, you wanted to buy some land some residential land in Australia, together with four of your friends. You're an Australian. Three of your four friends are also Australian. One of them is a foreign person, and you decide to set up a unit trust to do it, and you each have 20% of the interests, even though 80% of the units are held by Australians, and it's only the 20% held by, by your one foreign friend, that unit trust is a foreign person because you only need 20% 
to be considered foreign, you know, 20% being a substantial interest. So if you have a rich uncle or a rich aunt overseas, creating a unit trust together with her would potentially fall under the reviews board jurisdiction or the treasurer's jurisdiction. Yeah. And when you're talking about a discretionary trust, the rules are even broader. That any, I read out an example from the FIRB website has these guidance notes that are quite helpful to explain how the rules work. And I came across a, an example in guidance note five about how they apply these rules to discretionary trusts, because of course, in a discretionary trust, it's not as easy to work out what a percentage someone holds as it is with a unit trust or, or a company. The example says, a discretionary trust is established in Australia and the trustee is an Australian citizen. Four individuals hold a beneficial interest in the trust as potential beneficiaries of any of the income or property of the trust. One of these individuals is not ordinarily resident in Australia and is not an Australian citizen, and the others are Australian citizens. The individual who is not ordinarily resident in Australia is a foreign person and is taken to have a 100% interest in the trust, irrespective of how the trustee may exercise his or her discretion in practice. The trustee of the trust is a foreign person for the purposes of Australia's foreign investment framework. So if you have... If any of the potential beneficiaries of the trust is a foreign person and as a potential beneficiary they, they hold a beneficial interest, even if the trust hasn't distributed any income or capital of the trust to them, they're deemed to have a 100% interest and therefore it's a foreign trust. When does this kick in? I assume it doesn't kick in when the discretionary trust is set up. I assume it doesn't kick in when the trust makes distributions. I assume it kicks in when the trust starts buying property or starts buying assets. Yes, that's right. Yeah, it has to be, the Act refers to different actions that can be taken by a foreign person. And there are significant actions and notifiable actions. And I guess actions that are just don't fall into either of those categories, everything else. And until a foreign person takes one of those actions, it's not relevant whether or not they're foreign or not. So you're right, if the trust doesn't want to acquire land, for example, then it doesn't matter that they're foreign. Yes. The, you know, there's no practical implication. Of so if the trust just put the money into a bank account to earn interest, then it wouldn't trigger a review. Yes, that's right. Then the last category is foreign governments and foreign government investors. So that can also include things like foreign pension funds that you know, often have large amounts of money to, to invest overseas. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the, the government itself that's making the investment. It can be a, you know, a foreign pension fund. It can be any, any entity in which the government has a 20% or more stake. In the case of a government foreign person, I'll talk later about how there are thresholds that only if the investment is above a particular monetary threshold does do these foreign investment review board rules have application. But in the case of a government investor, the threshold is nil. So they always need to, to seek approval. You know, when you consider 
the, you know, the national interest and the policy rationale behind these rules, that, that makes sense. That, you know, much stricter conditions are posed on, you know, Australian property being acquired by, by a foreign government directly. So I, I talked about notifiable actions and significant actions. Uh, and everything else. So if something is neither a notifiable action nor a significant action, then the rules don't have any, the rules don't apply because the treasurer doesn't have any power to reject an application or to impose conditions before agreeing or you know, to unwind and force a sale if, if it's gone ahead. But if it's a notifiable action, that means that the, that the foreign person must notify the treasurer before taking the action, and there's you know, very heavy penalties if they go ahead and uh, you know make the acquisition before getting approval. Notifiable actions are ones that are considered higher risk to the national interest, and then the next category is a significant action, which is still considered some risk because the treasurer still has the power to to reject the application, but technically you don't have to notify the treasurer of the, the application. So you can go ahead and make, you know, acquire what you want to acquire without getting approval from the treasurer. If the treasurer then comes to their attention later on and they decide I want, you know, to reject it, then the treasurer does still have the power to to force a sale. So what that means is, in practice, it may be a prudent decision, even though it's a, not a notifiable action, and therefore notification is not strictly required ahead of time, given that there is a possibility that the treasurer finds out about it afterwards and decides that they still want to reject it, it's perhaps a good idea to apply anyway for that approval. Are you aware that this has ever happened, that the... Treasury forced a subsequent sale again of the asset? I think it has happened with respect to property purchases. Yes, I think it has in residential property yeah, purchases. In resident, yes. Yeah, you're right. Perhaps I'll just define what a notifiable action is, because that's the. So, a notifiable action is a proposed action by a foreign person to acquire. A direct interest. Now that can be 10%, it can be 5%, it, it can be any percent, depends on the circumstances, in an Australian entity or Australian business that is an agribusiness, farming, primary production, that, that sort of thing, fisheries, or a substantial interest, and again substantial interest is 20%, in an, an Australian entity or an interest in Australian land. Generally these will only be a notifiable action if the target or the land is valued above a monetary threshold. Are you sure you, the percentages are right? Because you have a direct interest of 10% or less. Yeah, so that, that was unclear. So 10% or less was the definition of direct interest because in some cases 10% is a direct interest, some cases 5% is a direct interest, in some cases any interest is a direct interest, and then it's a direct... Sure? Because a direct interest is a direct interest. 
it's a defined term, so it doesn't okay. mean an interest that you hold directly. Ah, okay. It's it means it, you have some some say in the. Yeah. So a define so a direct interest mm -hmm. is defined to be an interest of at least of at least ten percent in the entity or business, or an interest of at least five percent in the entity or business if the person who acquires the interest has entered into a legal arrangement relating to the business of the person and of the entity or the business, or an interest of any percentage if the person who acquired the interest is in a position to influence or participate in central management and control, or to influence, participate in, or determine the policy or of the entity or business. So what is a direct interest depends on which of those three categories applies and then any interest above that relevant percentage in a business that is an agribusiness is a notifiable action. So in some cases, if a direct interest, if the person, let's say the person has you know, the ability to, to influence you know, central management and control, then they can acquire, whether it's Half a percent, one percent, ten percent, twenty percent, ninety percent, it's a notifiable action. In the case of an ordinary case that that where the direct percentage, sorry, a direct interest is ten percent or more, then nine percent is not a notifi notifiable action, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, all the way to a hundred is. So that the confusion was that it needs to be a direct interest or more, but what is a direct interest is 10% or less, depending on which category you fall into. So significant actions. Yes, yeah, so significant actions, I can imagine the most important one is acquisition of land, of real estate. I can imagine that's where probably is the most common significant action. Yeah, and things can get a bit confusing in that there can be an overlap in the categories. They're not defined so... Notifiable action is defined quite clearly. Significant action isn't as, as clearly defined and something can be both a notifiable action and a significant yeah. action. Yeah, because But the more important thing is that it's a notifiable action and yeah, yes. therefore notification is, is required. Yes, because everything that is a notifiable action is also a significant action, but not everything that is a significant action is also a notifiable action. I believe that's correct. When foreigners buy shares on the Australian Stock Exchange, that only becomes a significant action when it exceeds certain percentages of shareholding, correct? That's right. It would need to exceed a 20% interest before they, you yes. know, before they need to get approval. Or 40% by two people. That's right. Unless it's in a, a sensitive Area. sector. So if somebody buys, for example, staple securities of Sydney Airport it might be a sensible investment. The significance of being in a, in a significant sensitive sector is not so much the percentage threshold before notification is required, 
but it's the dollar threshold before notification is required. An acquisition in a sensitive business, the threshold is $266 million, whether or not the the applicant is from a free trade agreement country or not. But if we compare that to an acquisition in a business that isn't sensitive, it's $266 million, so the same threshold if they're from a non-free trade agreement country, but it's $1.154 billion if they're from a free trade agreement country. So that's where, in terms of non-land acquisitions, that's where the difference comes in. If you're from a free trade agreement country, whether or not the application relates to a sensitive business makes very big difference to, to what the threshold is. But if you're not from a free trade agreement, then that lower threshold of $266 million applies regardless. So, so it doesn't it's not particularly significant whether the business you're you're acquiring a a significant stake in is in a sensitive sector or not. So these monetary thresholds, they apply to anything. As long as your investment as a foreigner is under these relevant thresholds, you don't need approval. That's right. Though, Though the threshold in some cases is nil. So in residential land, it's nil, regardless of what country the investor is from. They, they so always need to Okay, so they seek. always need. Yes, okay. unless, or they can, there can be an exemption that is in place. Okay, so any foreigner wanting to buy residential land or vacant commercial land needs to apply to the review board, no matter how low value the land is. Yeah, unless there's an exemption certificate in place, and it could be that someone else has applied for the exemption on their behalf. So what I'm thinking of here is a new or near new dwelling exemption certificate. So that's where a developer builds a block of flats, gets an exemption certificate, and then goes to an expo in China and presents yeah, very well put. So the people at the expo in China, they don't need to apply for the exemption themselves. They they simply are told that there, an exemption is in place. At the height of the property boom, Australian developers had huge expos in China where they showed models of apartment blocks, etc., and sold apartments. So I'm assuming now that all of those developers, before they went to China... To, to present their wares would have received such an exemption certificate. Yeah, I think that's yeah, quite mm. likely, I'd agree. And yeah, I talked about some statistics from the 2016-17 year. In that year, China was definitely number one in terms of both number of applicants and the dollar value of, uh, of total approvals. And then the United States came in second. And so then when an exemption certificate applies or is present then anybody can buy those apartments, whether they have any connection with Australia or not, it doesn't matter. They can be a foreign person, they can be a unit trust, you know, with everybody outside of Australia, it doesn't matter. As as long as there's an exemption certificate, it doesn't matter who actually buys the asset. That's right. (laughs) 
and to get one of these uh, the, the, uh, new dwelling exemption certificates, the development needs to consist of 50 or more dwellings. So it's not you know, for larger large developments where, mm-hmm. where it's applicable. Big buildings. Yeah. Another exemption that reminds me of our discussion earlier about how an Australian citizen can still be a foreign person if we're talking about an acquisition of an Australian of Australian land, there's an exemption where the person has a close connection to Australia, and a person will have a close connection with Australia if they are an Australian citizen, uh, the holder of an Australian permanent resident visa, or a New Zealand citizen. So the Australian citizen can still be a foreign person if they're not ordinarily resident in Australia, which may be relevant for other kinds of of acquisitions, but for an acquisition of Australian land, they're kind of there in and then they're out again. So that means New Zealand sheep farmers, for example, can come into Australia and buy large amounts of land and automatically qualify for an exemption thanks to the New Zealand passport. I believe so. Yeah, that's that's my understanding. Even if they count as a foreigner because they don't meet the 200-day rule, then they still automatically qualify for an exemption. Yeah, that's right. So let's say you're you're a foreign person and you're not a person with a close connection to Australia and you want to acquire residential land. So it's automatically above the threshold because there is no threshold. Then what the government considers or it's a major factor, is does it contribute to the supply of of housing in Australia? Because, of course, house prices and housing affordability is a significant political issue. And so for that reason, if it's an application of an existing dwelling and there's no plans to develop that and increase the number of dwellings on, on the land the application will almost certainly be rejected. If it's an application for to acquire land, then typically it will be approved, but only subject to a condition that dwellings be constructed within four years because that would increase the you know, number of dwellings. If it's a new dwelling, you know, you talked about the, the expo of the, the, the property developer, that would typically be approved because that's what encourages new dwellings to be to be built. But coming back to the monetary thresholds, yeah. I think apart from land, they are incredibly high. So apart from land, foreigners usually can buy an interest in an Australian business, etc., because the thresholds are 266 million or 1.1 billion. So for small to medium business any cross-border acquisition probably will not fall foul of the review board. Yeah, that, that's right. There's, with the possible exception, depending on how small the business is, agricultural land, that threshold could be relevant because that's, uh, if we're talking about, if you're from the United States, New Zealand or Chile, it's $1.154 billion. If you're from Singapore or Thailand, then it's $50 million. But from anywhere else in the world, it's 15 million is the relevant threshold. So 
For agricultural land. For agricultural land. Yes, but when you move away from agriculture yes. and then just look at business in general, non-land business in general, yeah. the thresholds are incredibly high. They're 266 million yeah. or 1.5 yeah. billion. D developed commercial land, non-sensitive, 266 million. If it's sensitive, like an airport or a, or a port or a, or a mine, then 58 million. So, yeah, you're right. This is significant dollar amounts, hmm. uh, which is why it's, as you say, for, for SME clients, if it's not residential or vacant commercial land, then it's likely that they'll never have to yeah. worry about these rules. The sky's your limit. Mm. What happens once an application has been submitted? The treasurer can either decide to approve something unconditionally, you issue a, a no objection notification, or they can approve it but subject it to conditions, or they can reject it, prohibit it, and if it's already been done, they can order it to be unwound and you know enforce the sale of the investment. So in terms of the timing, let's say on, on day one, an application is submitted and generally there are fees that need to be paid when the application is, is lodged or at least the clock doesn't start ticking until the application fee is, is paid. In the case of residential real estate, it depends on the value of the land or land and buildings that are being acquired and there are, it goes up by a million dollars. So an acquisition for a million dollars or less The fee payable is $5,700 at the lowest fee you'll pay. One to two million, it's $11,500. Two to three, $23,100. Seven to eight million, $69,300. Mm. Up and up and up, to, you know, yes. uh, depending on how expensive the, the property is. So when a developer gets a new development exemption certificate, he would just pay one fee and then there is no further fees to pay. Yeah, so there's a, f a fee for that certificate. Top of my head, sorry, I can't remember yeah. what no, no, what fine. the fee payable is. But yeah. yeah, so there would be a fee payable in there. The foreign person, they've lodged the application, they've paid the fee, now day, day one. The treasurer then has 30 days to either make a decision or to grant themselves more time. So they call that issuing an interim order. And the interim order can give them an additional 90 days. So if they wait the full 30 days and then issue an interim order, they have 120 days to, to decide. Though my understanding is in most cases, an interim order isn't necessary and, and a decision is made within 30 days. So let's say that's the maximum time period and we're now at... 100, day 121, the treasurer then has 10 days to notify the applicant of the decision. So that takes us to day 131 that you know, they get told, yes, you can go ahead with, with the acquisition. And then the applicant must make that ap application, must, the applicant must make that acquisition within 12 months of being granted approval. So that's how the, the timing works. And there's no outside review. You can't appeal to, I suppose the only one above the treasurer is the prime minister. You can't appeal to the prime minister. You can't appeal through the courts mm -hmm. 
so the, the treasurer is final. the decision is final. Nothing you can do about it if if you're you're not happy with it. So we talked about how the condi- the approval can be conditional. One of the types of conditions are tax conditions, and in some cases, no conditions will be applied if if the treasurer believes they're not necessary to protect the the national interest, then he doesn't need to apply them. In most cases, at least since February 2016, there are eight standard conditions that the Treasurer will will typically apply. And in some cases, they may apply more beyond that. But the eight standard conditions, well, generally speaking, that the applicant needs to comply with tax laws and cooperate with the ATO. So, they are one that they the applicant must comply with tax laws of the Commonwealth in relation to the action. They must use their best endeavours to ensure, and within its power must ensure, that entities within its control group comply with those laws. So it's not just that they need to comply, any entities within their control group. So and control for these purposes is taken from the Corporations Act definition, you know, if they have a subsidiary that they control or a parent that's within their group or a sibling entity, you know, one that shares a common parent with them, they need to do everything within their powers to ensure that the other entities in the group also comply with these tax laws. And the same is true with the requirement to provide any document or information that the ATO requests, provided it's a lawful request, they must comply with that request and require all the entities in their group to comply with that request. They need to pay their their debts, as as you would assume, and do the same for the entities in their control group. They need to provide an annual report to the Foreign Investment Review Board on their compliance with those actions. They need to also advise the Foreign Investment Review Board within 60 days of a termination event. So if they dispose of the asset that was subject to the approval, they need to notify, even if the disposal isn't to a foreign person and therefore doesn't require Foreign Investment Review Board approval, they need to notify the board of that termination event within 60 days of of it happening. Those are the tax conditions, and obviously there are penalties if they're not complied with. There are other conditions that, well, it could really be almost anything, but you know, to give some examples of the kind of things that might be conditions that might be imposed, it could the Treasurer may decide to require the target's business to be undertaken solely from within Australia. They may decide to limit foreign ownership to less than 50%, so approved, but you can't, you know, it still needs to be majority Australian-owned. They could require a percentage of the target's board to be comprised of Australian citizens and residents, and they could require a commitment to support local communities, local employment, and or to operate and pursue growth in certain locations or in, in at or around certain assets. And I think, for example, that often happens with mining approvers. Yeah. Not that they are necessarily involved foreign investors, but I think quite often mining licenses are issued with the uh, 
caveat to support local communities and local employment. Yeah, yeah, I believe that's right. So the steps are basically, first you look at whether you even count as a foreign person or a foreign entity. Mm -hmm. If you don't, then you don't even need to worry about the review board. Then the next step is to look at the monetary thresholds because you might be below the monetary thresholds and then you don't need to worry about the review board either. And then if you are a foreign person or a foreign entity and you are above the thresholds for that particular investment, then you need to apply. Yes. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, that's a fair summary. You could get technical and say between determining if you're a foreign person and the threshold is it a significant action or a notifiable action? Because, you know, maybe you're above a threshold, but it's still not a significant action because you're below that relevant percentage, you know, oh, yes, because what point. you're acquiring is is so valuable that, you know, an investment in the millions of dollars, uh, and in some cases over a billion, is still not enough to be a significant action, though yeah, I imagine that's rare, but it could happen. So so I would add in, first, are you a foreign person? Then is it, what kind of action is it? Is it significant, notifiable, significant or other? If it's notifiable or significant, you know, what's the relevant threshold? And then is there an exemption in place? Yes then go ahead and submit the the application. So we basically have four steps. The first one is, are you a foreign person or entity? Second one is, is it a notifiable action or a significant action? The third one is, what is the monetary threshold? And the fourth one is, does an exemption apply? Yep, I agree. And I just remembered changing the topic completely, but... Uh, a point that I think you know should mention, <laughs> maybe you can stick it in somewhere, is the role that the ATO plays. So the Treasurer is advised by the Foreign Investment Review Board, and he can also be advised by any government entity, you know, if he's interested in what will the effect on competition be, he can go ask the ACCC for, for their opinion and, you know, any department, the, the entire government is available to him, though it's you know, the Foreign Investment Review Board that plays the largest role. But when it comes to investments in residential real estate, the functions of the Foreign Investment Review Board have largely been overtaken or transferred to the ATO. So if you submit an application to acquire residential real estate, you submit that application and pay your application fees to the ATO, not to the Foreign Investment Review Board. And the ATO also had the responsibility of maintaining a, a register of foreign ownership of residential land and also agricultural land and water use entitlements. So that split, I believe, was part of the 2015 amendments that prior to then, Foreign Investment Review Board would process all applications. Now it's the, the ATO. And I'm not certain what the reason is, but it may be because residential real estate is is often rented out and you know needs to be disclosed in tax returns and their 
perhaps better placed to you know benefit from data matching of having the information come in at the application phase and then be able to track it properly that the that the tax side of things has been properly complied with once the the acquisition has has proceeded that the majority of applications come from China. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And in fact, in 2016-17, it was significantly higher than than any other country in terms of number of approvals. It was 9,714 from China and 316 from America. Though if you look at the dollar value, the difference isn't quite as significant. So that means you have a lot of small mom and dad investors trying to invest in Australia, whereas from America or other countries, we have more larger corporations trying to invest in Australia. Yeah, that's what it seems like from these statistics. And so, yeah, and that's politically interesting because it's probably a lot of mom and dads in China trying to park assets securely. Mm. Overseas, yeah, and I think the the level of investment from China can fluctuate significantly, depending on government's approach to allowing or prohibiting foreign investment. That when those restrictions are tightened, then you know we can see a, a significant reduction in Chinese investment, whereas. The American government's approach is more, more stable, and we don't see as significant fluctuations in the level of investment from America. One thought on the side, but it's more political thought, and I don't know whether it's the right place here. But in this review board, there has been no mention at all of asking where the money comes from. And so when investments are made from countries with high corruption, the review board just looks purely at thresholds and percentages, etc. There's no question where the money comes from, as far as I can see. And it, I wonder whether it, it we could, should ask. Yeah. It could still be taken into account in that one of the considerations for whether or not something is in the national interest is the the applicant, are they of good character? Now, I don't particularly know whether or not the government cares if, yeah, is that assessment of good character limited to, you know, well, if you act with good character in relation to your dealings with Australia, we don't particularly care what you're doing back home. Or do we take that into account in assessing character? And I'm I'm not actually sure. And I don't think we do at the moment. I don't think we yeah. I don't think we ask at all where the, where does the money come from? You know, th- you are a small government employee in China. How is it possible that you are able to buy a two million dollar property in Australia? I don't think we ask these questions. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And I think I mean I don't know how many people work for the foreign investment review board and and their staff that come from from treasury but when you consider 
the number of applications, you know, we talked about being about 15,000 applications in 2016-17. I imagine the vast majority are not being closely scrutinized because they're just, there isn't the the number of staff to be able to closely. And you're right, if, if some, you know, government bureaucrat in China wants to buy a $2 million house in in Melbourne, that's in the scheme of things for Australia, that's, you know, and the Foreign Investment Review Board approval process, it's not a particularly important application. And I can't imagine them making too many inquiries, but that's an assumption on, on my part. They don't, they want to encourage investment. So both there might be a concern that if we're too harsh, then the money will Go we'll go elsewhere. We'll just invest in a Canadian business instead of an Australian business. We have better weather. <laughs> so yeah, but look, it's I think believe the rules are, are stricter than they were pre twenty fifteen, and I believe that they're enforced more, also enforced more more rigorously than they were pre twenty fifteen. But as you say, with the thresholds as high as they are, there's you know, a lot of foreign investment that doesn't have any scrutiny at all. And, you know, given the number of applicants, even those that aren't scrutinised, most are probably not scrutinised that closely. Welcome back. So to see whether you need approval, you need to ask four questions. Are you a foreign person? Is it a notifiable or significant action? Is it above the threshold? And is it correct that no exemptions apply? If your answer is yes to all four questions, then you need approval to buy the asset. And you get the approval by applying to the Foreign Investment Review Board, who may or may not reject your application or accept it with conditions. In the next episode, episode 213, Our last episode for this year, and I feel sad saying this, I will miss you. In the next episode, we will try to inspire you with the top 10 podcasts for Australian accountants. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.